Welcome to the podcast. I'm Shira Schoenberg. Last week, the Boston Foundation published a report looking at housing in the Boston area, which confirmed the state's dire situation. There's not enough housing, and what there is is far too expensive. Here with me today are report co-author Luke Schuster, Executive Director of Boston Indicators, which is the Boston Foundation's research center, and Scott Van Voorhis, a Boston area reporter who writes the Contrarian Boston newsletter and has covered housing policy. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Luke, we know that we don't have enough housing to meet demand in the Boston area. Can you measure that shortfall? How much more housing do we need and what type of housing is lacking? Yeah, there's no one definitive measure of how much housing we absolutely need. A few ways to think about it. Um, The Metro Mayors Coalition, this coalition of 15 urban core mayors, they've set a target of building, I think it's 185,000 new units by uh, 2035. And um, one thing we do in the report is just to track how we're doing uh, a few years into that goal. And for those 15 Metro core communities, we're far behind that progress. Um, Another way to think about, you know, the amount of housing we quote unquote need is by looking at vacancy rates just at any given point in time. Are there enough rental units on the market so that people looking for homes can find one. We have among the very lowest rental vacancy rates of any major metro area in the country. And then it's the same on home ownership vacancy rates again, among the very lowest among any competitor metro area in the country. I know that Luke, your report looked at where homes are being built. What did you find? Are there certain types of communities that are building housing and other communities that aren't? Yeah, that's actually a nice sort of entree to one of the good news stories here, which is that permitting rates are up over the last five or 10 years across greater Boston. They're not up a ton. They're not meeting the demand for all the folks who'd like to live and work in our region, Um, but they're up nonetheless. And I think that is good news that's worth flagging. The challenge is that it's really a small subset of municipalities that are doing that new housing construction, it's really predominantly metro core communities like Boston, Cambridge, Medford that are doing most of the construction. There's a few developing suburbs that have been ramping up production too, places like Beverly and Plymouth. Um, communities that really haven't contributed much to our regional needs are the higher income suburbs, uh, many of whom are served by you know very valuable rapid transit assets like the commuter rail. Um, so uh, that's one of the places I'd, I'd point our attention for opportunities for, for more housing construction in the future. And we know that the legislature and the Baker administration have both really made efforts to increase the housing supply through various housing programs, changing in zoning laws. Scott, you've made the case that opposition by suburban communities has really gotten in the way of building new housing, even through some of these new programs. What are you seeing in terms of who is opposing new housing and why? Um, it's a, it's a mixed bag. I, I think it's really unequal the the level of production and who's building it. They have some communities that are very welcoming, especially the bigger um, urban areas. Um, so in some ways, they're picking up that uh, uh, need. But there are many other communities or suburban communities with T stations, rail stations um, that that aren't doing as much. And it's just especially the um, Metro West communities, the, the wealthier ones there, some in the South and North Shore in the same kind of demographics. There, there's really no single family home development going on in those communities other than teardowns, which are, you know, taking an older home, developer comes in, 
tears down a 50s cape and builds a, you know, you know, kind of McMansion or a larger house. So that will raise prices even more and 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 continue to uh, uh, takes away some of the more traditional affordable homes from those communities. So it's it's been a difficult. Um, there's been a lot of cheerleading, I guess. That's what I've written by governors and uh, you know by Baker, by Patrick, by previous governors along the lines of we need to build more housing and kind of playing up the good news around that and communities cooperating, but but the numbers just don't get there. And uh, in, in the initiatives that have been rolled out, not enough communities have taken you know, part in them or have been that interested. And developers, you know, they always like to complain, but they'll say, look, it's just hard. It's just, it takes too long. It's, it's uh, too uncertain a process. And uh, it just, we can't, we can't get there. So let's look at one concrete example of this. Uh, there's a recent law that required communities that are on the MBTA to allow more dense housing near public transit. And this is a requirement that a lot of towns push back on saying the way that this is calculated, the requirements that are placed on them just aren't, aren't doable for their communities. Scott, tell me what you've seen here. What's is there a problem with this requirement? How is it how is it intended to work, and how is it playing out practically? The problem seems to be that uh, communities that are or local officials that may be already kind of on the fence about housing, um, maybe of the mentality our schools can't handle it, whether that's really the case or not, or whether that's more just kind of fear. It certainly comes up. Uh, you know, we'll have more traffic, all the things that people typically cite when they uh, see new development. They are looking at the new law that, that uh, you know, local officials or boards that are more skeptical and saying, well, look, why should we go along with this? I mean, we, you know, we don't want to lose these grants, but it's only a few million dollars. And our newsletter has reported that, you know, a couple times, a couple different stories on on uh, comments made and uh, discussions by, you know, boards of select people and uh, and uh, planning boards just talking openly, well, you know, what would be the hit if we didn't do this? This sounds like, a, you know, having 800 new apartments in town, that sounds like a lot. I don't think we can do that. Uh, in the town of Kingston, um, the town man administrator threw out the idea, well, maybe if we um, just get rid of the T station, then we wouldn't have to comply at all. We still want to comply. We want to make sure that that's the case. We're not trying to not comply, but we could still get the grants and not do the housing because no one uses the T station, which is very debatable because I've heard a lot of uh, feedback from people saying, yes, I use it. And I don't know what they're talking about. So, but there's a sense of being overwhelmed that I don't know is, it, it's certainly there, it's real. I don't think people are making it up when they're opposing some of these projects or new ideas or new zoning, but I don't know if it's it doesn't seem to be always necessarily borne out by the facts. There have been studies by uh, the Donahue Institute, other organizations that have shown that the new apartments, uh, some uh, you know, multifamily housing doesn't bring in a flood of kids and it doesn't have these kinds of dramatic impacts that the opponents always cite. Sure. One thing I'd add is I think part of what's going on is a lot of confusion about how the law actually works. Each community has a target number of units that the new zoning rules would have to allow to be built 
Um, but that's very different from a mandate that those units get built. And so I think a community often, you know, hears that the new MBTA community's law it requires them to have a new zone that would allow up to say 500 new units of multifamily housing. The best research I've seen out there from up zonings in other parts of the country is that within five or 10 years, only something like five or 10% of the new capacity actually gets built. All this is talking about is the regulations on the books. And I think it'd be helpful if we almost reversed our thinking on this. People sometimes often complain that, you know, our housing market in Massachusetts is failing to meet the needs of, of families and residents in the region. And I think about it more like we don't have anything close to a, a free market in housing right now at all because we've allowed very small municipalities to erect zoning rules that legally prohibit the construction of anything other than large single family homes. So anybody who owns a piece of property in the vast majority of greater Boston right now who wants to you know, switch from having a single family home to a couple of townhomes or a triple decker, that's just banned outright by local zoning codes right now. And MBTA communities upzoning is just saying, you'd have more options for what you'd like to do with your land if the, the community adopted this new zone. And we're talking about a lack of enough housing, but Luke, one thing that really struck me in your report was that finding that when you're looking at affordable housing or subsidized housing, there's some communities that have these enormous waiting lists, which we're all familiar with. But then you mentioned there are these places like suburbs like Kingston or Situate that actually have empty units and nobody's applying. You made the case that people don't know about it or can't access it. What's going on here? Yeah, I mean, a common theme both across the analysis of our market rate challenges and on the subsidized housing challenges is that we have such a piecemeal hyper-local approach, both to market rate housing construction and to subsidized housing construction, that, you know, at best, we've just created a maze for people to navigate. And I think at worst, some people without the best of intentions use that, you know, confusion of the, of the system to make it very hard for people to know when there are openings for affordable housing lotteries. So for instance, any new affordable housing development has you know, important requirements to market the available units to a broad swath of folks. And there are some striking examples in the report of new developments in one part of the region where there's no marketing for those units anywhere nearby. Um, and so the advertising that happens for you know, a new development in Andover is happening in Boston or something, but not in Lawrence right next door. Um, so there's a lot of work we need to do to ensure much fairer access to the available units, especially out in the suburbs of the region. And Scott, you talked about this in one of your recent newsletters, arguing that there may be something, something else going on here. What, what do you think is leading to this imbalance? It's, it's, hard, it's hard to know, and I'm looking forward to kind of digging into that issue even more and, and, and appreciate the Boston Foundation for its report and bringing that up because I think it's so important. Uh, to, to highlighting this this gap here, why how we can have this mismatch between these empty units and such need and demand, and um, yeah, like that off the bat, that would make me suspicious. Having you know been a reporter at the Lawrence paper for many years ago, that uh, was it Andover wouldn't uh, advertise in Lawrence. I mean, there's a there's a dynamic there, but it could be. But who knows, right? Because there's just not enough information to know. It could be just, you know, everybody's in their own little silo. I understand why you couldn't even have just, I mean, we live in the 
uh, online age and wired age, why you can have just one database that everybody could log on to, everybody contributes. It can't be that complicated, especially you're not even talking about probably that many units, like 500 or something to list them and uh, and get the word out and see who wants, who's interested. I mean, could also be maybe some of these, the, some of the permits aren't anywhere near public transportation, which I think was also mentioned in the report. They may be still too expensive, but maybe that then you'd eliminate at least the idea that no one knows about them. And that's one factor you could deal with, right? Scott, on your point about, you know, having the internet and gosh, we ought to be able to solve some of these problems. It's worth flagging that there's a really neat new nonprofit called Housing Navigator Massachusetts that over the last couple of years has been trying to fill this void by gathering property by property data for every affordable housing unit. Uh, the goal is to get it statewide. They've got pretty good coverage for a lot of the region of greater Boston now. Um, and they're creating what they're calling kind of a Zillow for affordable housing uh, oh, that's really Boston. Yeah, which is really neat. The folks who are doing it have stressed that it's a ton of work to maintain and update, and they don't think that they can do this in perpetuity long term. And so the, you know, the policy solution here is to shift it over to state government to do this um, at, at scale. And it definitely seems like it would be a worthwhile initiative. Going back to your Andover Lawrence example, I mean, the word that we're not saying right there is race. You know, is an Andover development advertising, you know, not in Lawrence because they want to attract a wider audience, wider tenants. And so let's, I want to talk about that directly. Um, I mean, Luke, your report finds that Greater Boston is still segregated by race and by income. Uh, Black and Latino residents are concentrated in specific communities. Whites are more likely to own their own homes. Black and Latino residents are more likely to pay a higher share of income on housing. Talk about how some of the challenges, what are some of the challenges facing the Black and Latino communities in housing that are different than those facing white residents? Is it still a matter of bias? Are there other things at play? Uh, well, you've already flagged a lot of them in the framing of your question, which I, I really appreciate it. I'd say, you know, something that we often lose sight of on the housing production side is that there's a growing body of you know, historical research that's been done on the inception of local zoning codes about hundred years ago in the early 20th century. That's made it increasingly clear that many of the higher income suburban communities, both in greater Boston and other parts of the country, chose to adopt local zoning codes explicitly to exclude people who were not like the existing residents in those places. So it was very anti-immigrant, very anti-black at the time, you know, um, it, this was before the, the wave of um, Asian and uh, Latino immigrants we've seen more recently. Um, and those are examples of racially exclusionary public policy practices that are on the books today. Um, there's been a lot of, you know, discourse around historically racist public policies that um, pushed black and Latino families out of home ownership in prior generations, things like the GI Bill and redlining that made it much harder for non-white families to build wealth and assets. Local zoning codes ha have a similar relic in exclusion, but you know, by contrast, are still on the books in Greater Boston in 2022. How does that work? How does a zoning code lead to exclusion, and how is that still legal today? It, you know, it's done sort of on its face in a race-neutral way by saying you can't build anything other than say a single family home on a certain large lot size. What that means in practice, because black and Latino families in particular are disproportionately low and moderate income, the types of homes 
that they are more likely to be looking to either rent or purchase as a first time home are much more likely to be, you know, a more modest townhome duplex, triple decker. And those are the things that are literally prohibited from being built in many of our suburbs. So, um, and again, the connection here is that cities and towns adopted zoning cones in the first place at a period um, about a hundred years ago when they were, you know, explicitly aiming to keep the, you know, the racially white character of their communities. And Scott, how has race played a role in some of these housing issues that you've looked at? Well, yeah, it, it definitely has. I mean, it, it's, um, it's, I mean, there are, I think, code words that people use that over the years, I mean, just as I, you know, starting off as a young reporter covering some of these housing developments and people talking about, well, this is going to bring a lot of crime into town. And I don't want, you know, I fled the city because I didn't want to live next to housing projects like just apartment building, you know, and uh, that's been a constant theme and that really never, I don't think has ever gone away, but it certainly seems that there, there's that fear of, um, or talk about, you know, outsiders coming in. And I think, in, we, as we all know, in the Boston area, that it's, there's a racial element to that, right? I mean, that's what um, uh, people are, are talking about in so many words or, or seem to be. Um, so there's that, and there's that element of kind of nimbyism out there, I think. Uh, and it's interesting what uh, Luke was saying that it's fascinating going back to zoning in the early parts of the century and and how that yeah really had an exclusionary basis. And it continues to have, maybe not as blatant, but some towns have two, one, two acre zoning. I mean, I don't know if it's, you could call it gentrification, but the, the well, what's happening or the broader forces that seem to be take, reshaping the housing market in the Boston area have kind of, not only is it excluding, excluding blacks and Latinos and, and, and other groups from being able to buy housing or have a chance of buying housing in the suburbs, but it's excluding anybody who is below a certain income limit. So now we're going into this sort of like, almost like towns that are, especially the upper income towns that are almost like private clubs where you have to spend a million dollars to get entrance into it. So it's almost becoming a class kind of segregation issue too. I mean, you know, you're all your, a lot of the more uh, modest homes that are built in the 50s, 60s getting torn down, replaced by these bigger houses. You know, it's not unique to Boston hardly either. So I think it's happening a lot of, of the cities that have seen lots of growth. But. So given all of these factors, we're at an inflection point in this day. We're about to have a new governor, new administration. Luke, what works? What can be done to improve the housing situation? I think one important frame for thinking across solution opportunities is doing more of these collectively, either region-wide or, you know, because we don't really have functioning county-level government in Massachusetts, doing it at the state level. Because I think the one-off town-by-town approach is, you know, ultimately not how we're going to get to greater equity and growth as a region. People live across town lines. They work across town lines. We need to broaden the, the sphere of influence when thinking about these public policy solutions. So to get specific, I think steps like the MBTA communities upzoning law are a step in the right direction because it's an example of the state saying, you know, we expect every community that's getting service by our um, rapid transit system to contribute something towards our shared housing needs. It's what the state was a real leader on um, 
gosh, 60 years ago now with the inception of 40B, you know, doing something to expect a baseline minimum contribution of affordable housing in every community. I think we could go a lot further, but conceptually that feels like the right direction to me. Scott, have you seen programs that are actually working? In terms of uh, affordable housing or just market rate housing or? Both. More broadly, how can communities look at approaching this? How can the state, the new administration, come up with ways to actually address the housing issue in a way that's successful? I just think this needs to be a much tougher approach from the state to, to communities. And I don't know if that's, maybe that's not even politically possible because no governor wants to get into a feud with 200, you know, towns and suburbs and but what we're doing isn't working. It's, uh, you know, 20 years. I mean, we can all go back over the stories and the initiatives launched and it's just not moving the needle the way it needs to be moved. And maybe it just continues to go on this way and it, uh, we reach, you know, sort of Silicon Valley levels of unaffordability and inequality. I, I, I just don't think that's a great future, but something needs to be done. I think Healy has laid out the idea that being so really, you know, supportive or wanting to back the MBTA communities law. Um, the only thing I would, I, my concern, and I kind of flagged down one of my stories was that it talks a lot about getting cooperation and working with communities. And of course you want to do that, but it, there didn't seem to be any sticks or seemed to be more carrots. And you could just do, continue to, you know, do all the happy talk to the, you know, the cows come home and it's not going to move the needle. They have, there has to be something at stake where people are uh, locally, you know, local officials are going to say, look, I, we really don't want to lose that grant or, um, or this doesn't look good or, um, or this addresses our concerns about school costs. I don't know. Luke, do you agree? Is it a matter of just getting tough on the municipalities and the suburbs? Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I think uh, they need to do more and it's not fair the way it's right now. We have kind of a scattershot approach where some communities are doing more than their share and others can kind of skate by and do nothing and that's not fair either right some people could say look i don't you know i've heard that though i i not as you know they we're in cambridge and we're getting all this hard they feel they're getting hyper development but you know somebody out in 495 or metro west is not you know is block, blocking any new housing so california has certainly taken a more aggressive approach and I looked at that and it did seem like they were having success and and more recently were actually passing us in terms of <laughs> crude metric I came up with housing units per permanent per, per residence. It's hardly overall a success story in the California housing market, but I look at it and say we're we're headed there, right? So why not do that now, then wait another 10 years? And then when you're back or backs are against the wall, having to do statewide rezoning and and uh, I'm not an expert on it. Luke probably knows a little about that. I don't know what how much you could do on a statewide level, but it it seems like it, that needs to be approached as opposed to just trying to convince reluctant communities. We have 300 or and something towns and cities in the state. It's a, it's a really that's a heavy load to to carry. Yeah, I think the politics of this are tough. The, the governor's approach through MBTA communities is, to me, it's sort of trying to split the difference. It's, you know, a statewide expectation that you create a new multifamily zone. So that's the state stepping in and, and expecting something. 
But because it leaves so much latitude to how it happens at the local level, you know, that could be some of what's leading to, to some of the local backlash. I, I don't, I'm not the political operative to know if that was the right calculus or not. I would say just, I am somewhat optimistic that we're having this conversation at all. I mean, that happened alongside with the housing choice reforms that lowered the voting threshold for making certain zoning changes to you know, allow for just a simple majority, which I think is positive also. So if these are interim steps towards something more like what California is doing, you know, they just legalized, for example, the construction of accessory dwelling units or, or backyard cottages in every parcel of land statewide. Um, they also effectively ended single family exclusive zoning statewide, allowing for duplex construction on any parcel statewide. Um, so, you know, if that's where we get two years from now or something, I think, the, the, you know, these will have been really important interim steps towards that, but we'll have to see. And you can always read more on commonwealthmagazine.org. Luke Schuster and Scott Van Borges, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks, Shira.